You know, something that I've discussed with skating friends over the years as adults, like looking back on our skating careers, um, a lot of my friends that I've met in the rink are still my friends today, and we all talk about how we don't have a fear of messing up in the same way that we see in some of our other friends and colleagues that don't skate. We joke all the time that, you know, you, you fall down, you get up and you do it again. Or you're at a competition, you fall down, the music does not stop. You can't get off the ice. You have to keep going, even if you fall down seven times in that program. Hello, this is Jim Koppel with the Legacy Podcast Project. Today we're talking with Deborah Spence, who is an assistant director at the Office of Community-Oriented Policing Services for the U.S. Department of Justice in the United States. We are honored to have her with us. Deborah is a colleague, a friend. She's also a professional ice skater and a professional ice skating judge. She brings a lot of insights, has a rich history, and a great tradition to pass on to the next generation. We're honored to have you here, Deborah. We're talking with Deborah Spence. I know her as Debs. I've known Deb for about 14 years. She works at the U.S. Department of Justice. And we're interviewing her today on the Legacy Project. And... Um, Deb, give us a little information about your background, where you went to school, what you studied. Uh, sure. I, uh, um, I grew up in, outside of Philadelphia, uh, went to a small school run by Moravians, um, and uh, it was a school that uh, was founded by uh, a woman, and I think that actually was influential in how, the, although the school was co-ed when I attended it, um, really set expectations of, uh, you know, the girls that went through that school were had all the same possibilities as all the boys who did. And it was also a very old school. Um, I was a member of its 250th graduating class. And uh, so that meant that over its long history, they had sent uh, numerous students to study abroad. And I wound up doing my undergraduate degree at the University of St. Andrews in Scotland. Um, And I studied uh, really early modern European history, mostly uh, France and Britain, um, anyway from about the 15th to the 17th century. Um, So, of course, that was obviously why I would wind up working in a, the criminal justice field today. Um, actually, I studied that from the point of view of I wanted to go to college and study something that was interesting to me. And um, uh, I feel that the experience out of it was one of uh, learning to think critically, to read, to communicate and share ideas, and that that could apply to anything I wound up doing. So I tell my friends my degree in medieval history helps me work with Congress. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Uh, to what extent, in terms of what you chose to study, did, did your family have any influence, your parents? Uh... I think only in the sense that they said that if they were paying for this experience, that they wanted me to get the most out of it, and that mm-hmm. I would do that if I studied something that I thought was interesting and important to mm-hmm. me. Um, my, uh, uh, my father's a chemical engineer, very, you know, sciences, concrete, professional um, background. My mom is a uh, minister. Um, but, uh, no, they didn't, you know, there was no expectation of you have to go to college because whatever you study is what you'll do for a career, that you figure that out separately. You, you, your job right now is to be a good student. You figure out what is your paycheck yeah. afterwards. So. You have brothers, sisters? I don't. I'm an only child. Only child. So I have, uh, I have some uh, slightly older cousins who are like siblings to me. Their kids call me uh, Aunt Debbie, mm-hmm. um, and uh, we grew up very close, but... Uh, but no, I'm, I'm an only. You're an only child. Great. Well, in terms of uh, who you are, what you do now, uh, who are the most important influences in your life? Who are the influencers? 
some of the most important influencers to me were actually uh, coaches. I was a multi-sport athlete growing up, um, primarily a figure skater, and um, my coaches in that sport are people who I spent probably as much time with as my own parents. Um, you know, it was a, something you did, you know, 25 hours a week. But I also played, you know, sports through school, and, and some of those coaches were very influential. Just this past year, my school's field hockey coach uh, retired after decades, and I was reading some of the news stories about it, and I think back of how I didn't necessarily enjoy being a part of that experience. She ran a very tight ship, very, felt like we ran for miles, and I don't like running. Um, but uh, she was so, um, her sense of dedication and the way she conveyed that it didn't matter that we were the smallest school in the league, we could be just as competitive because we're going to work hard. Um, you know, at a small school like mine, everybody who goes out for the team is on the team, so it wasn't like she could just select the best possible athletes. She had to make a winning team out of the athletes she had, and she did incredibly successfully over decades, and I think that was a real influence of that hard work matters. Um, and I think for my skating coaches, it was really that that's a sport where you fall down all the time. You fall down a lot in practice, you even sometimes in competition. But, you know, really in practice, you are falling day in, day out, and your coaches have to help you learn that that's part of the learning process and that it's not, doesn't mean that you're not good at this or that you shouldn't be doing this or that there's no point in this, but to always see the, you know, but where this is getting you. And I think those sorts of lessons of the value of, the value of hard work, of setting yourself a goal and not worrying about how many times you fall down has been huge for me. Yeah. And you've carried that through in terms of what you do now. Absolutely. How you apply it. I really think with, you know, as an adult, like I, I want to find the, how do I make this work? How mm-hmm. do I, what's the solution? What is the way to get what I want done, done? Yeah. Um, I don't, I don't like the simplistic no. I, <laughs> you know, well, okay, if I can't do it that way, maybe there's another way. Yeah. Uh, Your mother was a minister. Yes. Was that an influence? Um, I think in the sense that, uh, I mean, she was ordained in the mid-70s or mid-to-late 70s when, sure, lots of my friend's fathers were ministers, but almost nobody saw a a female minister. Um, So I think in the sense that, uh, you know, she was somebody who, or is, uh, somebody who said, well, this is my calling, all the rest of you think that I shouldn't have this job. Well, I should. Yeah. Um, you know, my God has called me to this, so right. don't tell me I can't. Um, I think that has been incredibly influential. In you know, many ways, she's very yeah. much an example of her own generation. And um, I mean, in my lifetime, I've never seen my mom wear jeans because, you know, she <laughs> wouldn't do that. Um, she's very proper. Uh, but um, I think that career choice and the time frame that she did it was really a, a sense of... Yeah, she had to break through a lot of barriers. Right. Yeah. Um, like, she applied to seminaries that didn't accept women, and she knew that going in, And mm. but it was important to her to make the point that mm-hmm. this is what I want to... Yeah. This is what I need to do. Yeah, kind of determination. And again, like you said, so you had a calling. Yeah. That overrides a lot of criticism or a lot of, a lot of other barriers. Exactly. In the process. So in terms of what you do, what kind of legacy do you think you want to leave? People around you, your nieces, nephews, or or cousins? Um, You know, it's funny that you asked me this question because just uh, the other week, a uh, longtime co-worker um, 
left uh, our office for change of career, and like, we didn't make her leave. She had family and life choices and things to do, and so change of career. But she um, uh, she was somebody that I had originally hired, and then you know we've moved up through the organization and slightly different paths. But she left me a, um, a thank you note for working together over the last 10 years, and she actually said in there something to the effect of, um, you've always been uh, such an amazing role model to me of a you know strong woman in the workplace. And I was so proud of that in the sense that she looked up to me as somebody that was an example of how uh, women can advance in management in a um, largely male-dominated profession and make a difference. And I think I would have had a harder time answering that question if she hadn't said that thank you note because that made me feel so good that I think that's Mm -hmm. it. I think that I'm, I wouldn't say that I'm a, uh, I'm not going to phrase this right, like a feminist activist in that sense, but I do think that I've always had this sense of Anything you can do, I can do better. Maybe mm-hmm. I really like Annie Oakley. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I feel that this notion of that I shouldn't do something or I can't do something because I'm a girl has mm-hmm. always bothered me. So to get that thank you of having, mm-hmm. I clearly model that and show that to other people that I don't let my gender be a barrier to the things that are important to me um, was huge. So I, I, think, I think that's it. I think that's what I want. I want my nieces in particular to see that you know, there's there's nothing they can't do because they're a girl. Yeah. Before you were at the Justice Department, mm-hmm. what did you, what was your job? What, where were you? Uh, I worked with a um, a small consulting firm, so mm-hmm. doing a lot of government work, but mm-hmm. um, uh, just on a much smaller scale. Mm-hmm. So, have you run into barriers yourself in terms of where you've felt like uh, you were being stereotyped or isolated or pushed aside because you were a girl? Um, I don't think in formal settings. Like, I've never felt institutionally barred from doing something. And, I mean, maybe that's partially growing up entirely post-Title IX, right? I, mm-hmm. I don't know. Um, but definitely the sense of being in large meetings where, um, uh, you know, my hand isn't seen or... Um, I mean, I'm not, I'm not tall either, right? So it's like I'm the girl, the only girl in the room, and I'm shorter than everybody else. I feel like everybody just talks over my head physically, not intellectually. Um, that kind of stuff where it's like, oh, uh-huh, yes, fine, move on. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's much more at an individual level than at a organizational or institutional mm-hmm. one. I'm sure that you know, part of that is being a, a white woman with an easy-to-pronounce name probably helps too. Um, I suspect that my experience of not feeling systematic gender barriers is not representative of everybody. But yeah, so it's not a, it's not organizational. It's the way in which sometimes individual people uh, seem dismissive or more of a, uh, you know, they they respond with platitudes and not with serious engagement. Um, So I have run into that. You mentioned that somebody had left a card or a note when they were leaving their job uh, thanking you for the role model that you had been. To what extent uh, did that message define or how pronounced is it in terms of the legacy gift that you would like to leave, particularly to women who might be influenced by you? How would you summarize the gift that you would like to give? I, I think it's to model the behavior that I hope other people will. I don't, I'm frustrated when I see uh, women and girls sell themselves short and not give 
their organizations or their communities a chance to see what they're capable of doing. I don't want people to not try for things. I want people to know it's okay to, you miss the mark, to to fail at a task, to not achieve a goal, to fall down 75 times in an hour. Like, that's okay. That doesn't mean that you are a failure and that you're not worthy of taking up public space. I think I want people to occupy space. And if I can model a way to be present and be value-added to whatever it is I'm doing. So that metaphor of falling down, you're a skater. And yes. And you said you fall down a lot a in lot. the process. <laughs> uh, to, to what extent is, have you really intentionally seen that experience as something that has influenced decisions or when you have failed or when you've screwed up or you've messed up in some way? It's huge, and it's something that I've discussed with uh, skating friends um, over the years as adults, like looking back on our skating careers. Um, a lot of my friends that I met in the rank are still my friends today. And we all talk about how we don't have a fear of messing up in the same way that we see in some of our other friends and colleagues that don't skate. And we think it's the, um, we joke all the time that, you know, you, you fall down, you get up and you do it again. Or you're at a competition, you fall down, the music does not stop. You can't get off the ice. You have to keep going, even if you fall down seven times in that program. Mm. And what you, your coaches try to teach you when you're growing up is that even if you fall down 10 times in this program, you are still better than all the people who didn't get on the ice. Wow. And I think that's really what all of us took away from the sport. Um, also, when I was young, although this has changed in the figure skating testing structure, um, it used to be pass-fail. Um, I have one test that I took uh, multiple, multiple times. The, it's called the Argentine Tango. It was not my friend. Um, <laughs> I will joke with... Um, other skaters that I failed the Argentine tango three times, but I retook it ten because at one point they came along and they changed the wording from pass fail to pass retry. And I understand why they did that, and I do think there is value in that. This is a sport that little kids participate in. But um, I had taken tons of tests that I'd passed, I'd failed, whatever, over throughout my career. And I think, you know, I, I learned to... Uh, be a good failure in a way that, mm -hmm. that that wasn't that didn't minimize me it didn't mean that I should go home and never put on skates again it meant I needed to go back and work harder I know you're now also a judge mm -hmm. correct as a judge do you then interact after a, a match is it a match <laughs> a competition competition um, uh, we do sometimes uh, so uh, there's two types of judges they're the ones that are uh, sort of the style and quant quality judges mm -hmm. um, and then there's uh, uh, what's called technical panel that are identifying elements um, and whether they are completed according to the rules, that's the side that I sit on. Um, but we do have, we call them critiques with skaters during um, you know, preseason competitions um, so that they can learn more about what they can do to improve and um, how they can increase their scores and, and um, as they work towards the qualifying season. So you do get to talk to the kids about the technical things they're doing and where they might not have achieved features they were trying for or particularly when you're learning jumps you sometimes don't rotate them fully in the air and so they turn on the ice and there's a penalty that you pay in the scoring system for that and so you know sometimes you do get a skater that comes in and they've just had a atrocious skate yeah. and I think one of the things that I always try to do is say you know something along the it was just a bad day it was just an off day or you know it looked like you 
borrowed somebody else's feet today or something to basically say, I, even if I don't know, um, that says to them, I believe that this is not what, I believe that you are capable of much more than this, that just that some days we are totally off and it's like you, you can't stand up to save yourself, right? Like there's, you know, and to know that that's okay and that I still value and appreciate them yeah. being there and uh, you know you'll try to find the things of saying like and you you know you you kept trying you went for the next jump just as hard as the one before and you didn't give up in the program and that that's important mm-hmm. I think the other thing is that I enjoy judging it's I mean it's a volunteer position um, but I love watching the kids work through the season and see how much it means to them and I want them when I get the opportunity to critiques to understand that I value the time that they've put in and that I appreciate watching them. Um, yeah. They, you know, they're, they're all amazing for doing something like that right. and putting themselves out there to be judged. I mean, like, that's yeah. the funny thing. We call them judges, but you never really think about the fact that I am intentionally signing up and giving somebody money so that they can stand in judgment of me. <laughs> like, really? <Yeah. laughs> right. um, but I think that's huge. I don't, I don't fear judgment in that mm-hmm. sense because I've always, I've always had nine people who tend to not look all that happy, but what I've learned is it's because we're cold <laughs> watching yeah. you. Right? Um, I, when I taught for a little bit, I had a, a group of students, it was, they were going to go and take their very first test, and it was clear that they'd heard from older skaters in the rink, um, the judges are scary, you know, that they look mean. Mm. You're going to see a judge, and they're going to be wearing a very big puffy coat and a scarf, maybe a hat, and you'll only be able to see their eyes. And they'll look a little bit squinty. And I said, you just have to remember, they're cold. (laughs) (laughs) And all these little kids said, okay. Okay. (laughs) It was a powerful statement you made. Is it when you made the observation that you can fall down ten times, um, but uh, at least you're on the ice and uh, where other people are not engaged. And so that's something to, to either celebrate or recognize or validate. That's an important value. Uh, yeah. Where did you learn that? Did somebody say that to you and, and give you that instruction? Um, I think in pieces. Uh, I definitely had competitions as a kid that were disastrous, that I had been training really well and I showed up and it, like you just feel like, you know, you sort of get out there and you know in the warm-up that, ooh, I'm not, I'm off, I'm not right. And there's a piece of you that wants to just say, forget it, I'm not going to skate today and let me scratch. But, um, you know, my my coaches were like, no, we compete and you're going to try your hardest. And if it's a disaster, it's a disaster. It's one competition. Um, so I think there always was, and one of the things that, you know, they would say is that you're, you know, you've beaten all the people that didn't show up. Yeah. Um, in fact, on score sheets at skating competitions, people who withdraw are still listed at the um. bottom of the score sheet. So if you finish, you know, last in that group, but three people withdrew, their names are below you. Hmm. Um, Now, that's a function of the accounting system, not meant to be... Some um, lesson. Some lesson. (laughs) But I think, you know, when you're... uh, I think if you have good coaches and they're working Mm -hmm. with, you know, 8, 9, 10, 11-year-olds, they can use that instructively to say, Mm -hmm. but you beat beat those people. They didn't even put their skates on today. Yeah. Stephen Covey's book, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, the second habit, he says, living with the end in mind. You're young, so you may not have done a lot of thinking about this yet, (laughs) but when life comes to an end, what do you want people to say about you? 
I'll tell you, I've been thinking about this very hard for the last two days since you mentioned doing this podcast, and I'm, uh, I'm not entirely sure. And I, I don't think that's a function of my current age mm-hmm. um, so much as that I've realized that I would not describe myself as fly by the seat of the pants. Um, I certainly, if I'm taking vacation, six months of planning goes into it. Hmm. Um, but I don't plan my life in big chunks that way. Mm-hmm. Um, I have always wanted to be open to what's coming and to focus my energy on doing what I'm, what's in front of me to the best of my ability. So even when in you know job interviews, people say, what do you, where do you envision yourself in five years? I, I always like, I, I don't, I don't know. And I've, I don't want to say I fear, but there's a tiny piece of me that's like, if I say that I want to be this in five years or in ten years, A, what am I going to think if I don't achieve that? Mm-hmm. And then B, what if in my focus to trying to get there, I miss out on something amazing that I hadn't considered? So I think in a weird way, even though I like to be very methodical and organized and planning things, um, I don't... Uh, I don't like to spend too much time focused on it. Yeah, so you're not worried future. about it. Yeah, yeah, I'm really not. They're so going to the, say what they're going to say anyway. <laughs> exactly. I think that's really it. And I, I sort of, I kind of made myself laugh, thinking that I'm like, wow, I'm, I apparently live in the moment. Um, I'm just, I'm very organized about that moment. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm very good at planning tomorrow and maybe next week, but uh, not next year. So this next question really focuses on. Um, the legacy that your family leaves behind. I know that in my family, we had this ridiculous, if not morbid, practice of uh, as when my parents were alive, we went around the house and we put tags and things that we were going to take. <laughs> and that, uh, and the, the joke became, if I found my sister's tags on something, I would, I would move their tags. <laughs> and so it became, everybody would enter the house and all of a sudden inspect the tag. <laughs> um, what would you want to take from your parents' house at the end of their journey what do you want to hold on to that would be symbolic? Gosh. Um, although it, it actually is already gone from the house, mm-hmm. but I think at least symbolically, uh, growing up we had a, a baby grand piano. Um, my mom was a lifelong pianist. Um, her grandparents had basically informed her she would be a concert pianist, so <laughs> before she went to seminary, um, she has a, a degree in music. And um, I suffered through... I don't know, a couple months of piano lessons before I figured out that having an expert pianist in the house listening to you practice is no fun at all. Um, I figured out that my mom could not play a woodwind to save her life, so I took up the flute, so she couldn't critique. But uh, there was always a piano in the house, and so there was always music in the house. Um, Mm. My dad doesn't read music, but he plays guitar by ear. They were both huge singers. I think if I could have that piano back, that's what I think I would want, even though... To, for me, it would be furniture. Um, I think just that uh, they're, both of them are such avid musicians and that music was such a big part of their life that that's what I would want. And I, I think from you know, their actual current possessions, there would be music-related things that I would keep. Like They both have guitars. They both have uh, some amazing record collections. Yeah, so like that, that piece of uh, that legacy yeah. was important when yeah. you were growing up. So, taking a line out of the movie Leap Year, um, in your own house, if, if your house were to catch on fire, what one thing would you grab besides your cat? 
<laughs> the cat would be out the door before me, actually. <laughs> get me out of here. In figure skating, there are uh, test medals that you get when you achieve uh, tests. And some they start off as pins, and they get fancier the higher levels you go. I have one from my last free skating test, my senior free. We call it uh, earning your gold medal. And uh, that's what I would grab, because to me it is symbolic of my best day. I had stopped competing. Um, I'd gone off to college. I didn't even take my skates with me. And um, I'd stopped competing at the junior level. And uh, I came home from school one summer, and I decided that I should, I should finish what I started. I don't like leaving things undone. So I should take that last test. And so I had nine weeks to put together a program, figure out how to get through all these jumps, get my feet back underneath me, get in shape. The program was, you know, four minutes and 10 seconds long, which doesn't sound really long, except go sprint for four minutes and 20, 10 <laughs> seconds and occasionally do a jump in the middle and land on a knife. Um, you know, like I spent nine weeks uh, trying desperately to get to the point where I'd feel good about this test. I didn't do a single clean program run through the entire summer. Mm. I was, you know, frequently having breakdowns of I can't, I can't do this, I can't make this happen, it's, my body won't cooperate, I'm exhausted. A couple days before the test, I took like a huge crash out on the ice on a jump and, you know, split my lip and was, what am I doing? This has been a waste of my entire summer, I should have gotten a job. And uh, I got up that morning of the test and I'm, I'm going to go do this, <clears throat> all right? I get over to the rink, I warm up, my coach is, how do you feel? I'm like, I feel good. Yeah. He was my coach was one of the most calm people in my life. Nothing ever phased him. I've since learned now that I'm no longer a skater that he's a nervous wreck when his people skate, but he never let you on know that at the time. He's okay, great. Let's go out, do my warm up, still feel good. I feel great. I'm gonna go do this. I'm gonna go pass this test. I'm gonna do all my jumps. And I did, I skated a clean program. It was the only one I did in the entire summer. <laughs> and um uh I was taking a second an ice dance test later that day, and my coach came down the side with the, the judge's score sheets from the test session, and he's handed them to me, and he says, well, if you, you know, pass that Argentine tango later this afternoon, you'll be a double gold medalist in one day. And that sense of accomplishment that I didn't take that test for my coach, I didn't take it for my parents. If anything, they were annoyed that I was not earning money, but just spending money that summer. I wasn't competing anymore, so there was nobody else I needed to impress. Like, there's nobody on the planet who would have cared if I had ever taken that mm. test yeah. except me. Yeah. So I, um, I frequently wear that medal as a necklace, um, and that's what I would want to take because that was the day I did something for me and for nobody else that was a meaningful accomplishment, that was a capstone to something that had been such a huge part of my life. Yeah. So I would take that. One of the things that really strikes me, and I've never said this to you before, <laughs> but uh, a lot of what you've shared today uh, speaks into this. You and I worked together in the President's Task Force on 21st Century Policing. Yeah. And um, we had 11 stalwart prima donnas that <laughs> <laughs> uh, we had to... Uh, take through that process. For me, it was one of the most important things I think I've ever done professionally. Your role was such a Im critical, important role, and you were in the background. Mm -hmm. And uh, I never saw you once assert to be in front. In fact, I think uh, you defer mm -hmm. uh, to other people's credit. I mean, 
there are times when I've been in places and been introduced as if I wrote the whole report. <laughs> <laughs> and all I did was facilitate and give insights and input. And you're, I, I've always thought of your generosity hmm. in terms of uh, uh, that whole process, in terms of your colleagues, the, your, the people that you're working with, the task force. Do you see that as a part of who you are? Um, I think in having you say it, yes. I, I would say that's, I've always been like that. I think the as long as the people who I need to know my contributions, recognize them, that's what matters to me, not the broader oh, yeah. mm-hmm. um, public. Um, I mean, I, I, I do have a book with my name on the cover that I'm pretty proud of. Yeah. Um, but uh, uh, no, I think... Um, you know, it's, it's kind of funny, right, that figure skating is a solo sport and one that you're out on a huge stage by yourself wearing something very sparkly and eye-catching. <laughs> um, but I'm actually, I've never been drawn to being the, the solo mm-hmm. star. I yeah. have always worked on, you know, the crews of things in the theater. Yeah. Or I like to keep teams organized and on task. Mm-hmm. I'm one of those, like, we've got a timeline, let's go, let's go. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think then what I get out of it is I know that those people know that they accomplished right. the goal because... I was there, yeah, and I think that's... Well, I know in that process, most of the people that I talk to know that that process would never have been done without you. Yeah. <laughs> See, that I like to know. <laughs> yeah, that's, I mean, that is often, uh, I, I hear that. You're a reader? Yes. Name a book that's had a huge influence, either fiction or nonfiction, that influenced you. It's funny, I actually had a conversation with somebody the other day that I was saying, I always hated growing up when people would say, what's your favorite book? I'm like, it's always the one I'm reading. Um, uh, And I know I can say that because you you like books as well. I think, I really think it's more of a category of book than a particular Uh book. I'm drawn to biography as a group, and I don't think I would have, it was more that I can now see that I have a huge shelf of them. I go, oh, I apparently like reading about people and the type of biography that appeals to me is the the person that that is highly unusual i mean obviously i studied tudor england i have a ton of books on uh elizabeth first mm-hmm. and um and mary tudor and, and mary queen of scots like these are people doing something really unusual i think that that kind of thing appeals to me people try something a little bit different a little out of the ordinary um my dad would probably answer the question by telling you the uh, most important book to my Life or the Little House in the Prairie books because I read them till they fell apart uh, <laughs> as a kid. Um, but I think that's, in many respects, Laura Ingalls Wilder is representative of somebody doing something mm-hmm. different and out of the norm for her time. So I think, I think that's it. I like the biographical stories of people who have not taken the path of least resistance or done just the ordinary thing to blend into the masses. Mm-hmm. I think I, I admire people who, who do that, who can stand up and be different and be okay with that. Yeah. That's something I find hard in a way, but it's something I strive to do, and I, that's what I'm attracted to. Right? Yeah. So I like reading books about people who are able to not worry about how the rest of the world thinks about them and say that this is what's important to me. So I like, I like reading biography. I think, I mean, you get a lot of that in fiction, right? Lots of fiction as aspirational characters of mm-hmm. things. And I think, uh, I think what I like about biography is this notion that there really are people who, who, who do that. Yeah. 
Well, we've been talking with Deb Spence, um, friend, colleague, ice skater, <laughs> works at the U.S. Department of Justice, and we thank you for taking this time to talk about your legacy. You've inherited a great legacy, and you're giving a great legacy. Oh, thank so. you. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. To find out more information about this conversation and other Legacy Podcast episodes, go to ServantForge.org. Please subscribe to us on your favorite podcast app and consider leaving us a review. We want to hear from you. We want to get your ideas and your opinions. I have a new book that corresponds with the Legacy Project titled The Seeker, Bring Me the Horizon. You can find a copy of it on Amazon or your preferred book distributor. The book corresponds closely with these podcasts. The podcast episode was produced by Matt Erickson and edited by Carissa Erickson. The music is by David Hyde. Please look for a new episode of our podcast coming out soon. Remember, you have inherited a great legacy. You have an opportunity to create a great legacy. Engage your past to build a future.